we pray? We'll dedicate our study of this book and our time this morning to the Lord. Father, we are, uh, we are a people that need the truth of your word in our lives every day. Lord, uh, we are, I think, increasingly discovering uh, what you have known all along. Lord, uh, the tendency of our, of our hearts, how we're prone Lord, to go in our own direction, we're prone to go astray, we're, we're prone to go according to our own wisdom. And every now and again, uh, we kind of, uh, like a squirrel, we find a nut. Um, but more often than not, our own direction uh, leads to a place which isn't uh, where you would have us to be. And so we need the truth of your word, Lord, to speak into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, we need your peace, Lord, to reign in our hearts. Lord, we need to walk according to your ways. And so, Lord, as we study this book of Malachi, Lord, here we are, we're looking at a book 2,400 years ago written, and yet, as part of your holy word, we know that it is living and active. Lord, we know, Lord, that it's alive. We know that it can speak into the unique circumstances that every one of us in this room is facing and Lord that you can bring guidance and truth into those circumstances and so we ask once more Lord that you would bless your holy word and our study of it and Lord we pray that it would be not just for an academic uh, uh, time together but that it would be Lord for your glory as our hearts are molded in a way that gives you the worship that you deserve and that we were created to give. And so we lift up our prayer to you. We believe it's according to your will. And we ask you would hear it and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. So if you don't, it's small, so if you're not quite sure where it is or how to find it, just look for the book of Matthew. And turn back a couple of pages. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. But we're going to delve into or dive into this book for the next couple of weeks, uh, three weeks here, uh, the book of Malachi. Today, trying to tackle the first chapter of the book. Malachi, it's important to know, is a post, excuse me, post-exilic book. That is, it comes after one of the periods of exile or it comes after one of the periods of captivities that the Jews Underwent. Remember, there are 12 minor prophet books. There's another five what we call major prophet books. There's 17 books in our Bible that are written by one of the prophets of God that were sent to the Jewish people, whether that be the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, sent to speak into the lives of those individuals. The majority of them either came before the captivities and they were designed to call the people to repentance because God was about to bring a judgment, or they happened during the exile, books like Ezekiel or books like the book of Daniel, they were happening during the exile. But then there's a few that occurred after. After the period went through that period of, the people went through that period of judgment, they returned back to the land of Israel, and God wanted to once more minister to them. They were being in the process, they were in the process of being restored. The book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, and now the book of Malachi are those three post-exilic books that we have for us in our Bibles. And so if you haven't, make sure you get there. Let me show you this chart. You remember this chart that we, we did a while back? Anybody remember that? You had to be here for like two, three years ago. That may have even been before COVID, um, so four or five years ago. But we went through the old time. I don't know why we're laughing. This is not funny, Tony. Uh, that was what we studied. That's where those particular books, the red ones there in the bottom corner, that's where they fall. So the timing, the last period of captivity, there are two captivities. There was the Assyrian captivity, and then there was the Babylonian captivity. The Assyrian captivity started in 722 BC, and it affected the northern kingdom. The Babylonian captivity came in kind of waves, but it started right around the year 600 BC, and that lasted to 516. And so if something is a post-exilic book, it comes after the year 516 BC. Haggai, Zechariah are right around that time. 
the book of Malachi comes about 70, 80, 90 years even after that. And so you can place it somewhere around the year 440, 430 B.C., all right, about 400 years before Jesus or 430 years before Jesus and John the Baptist and the Gospels and all that we have there. That's going to be somewhat significant, and, and I'll point that out. It's not just that we know facts and we can put them on a timeline, uh, but I'll point that out as we continue to, to move through. Malachi ministered 80 to 100 years after Zechariah and after Haggai. He ministered around 440 B.C., now, you remember, hopefully, it wasn't that long ago, when we were studying the book of Haggai and studying the book of Zechariah, you remember that one of the big issues was the temple. And so the people had come back to the land of Israel. The temple had been destroyed by those that had conquered them. And they were in this process of rebuilding the temple. And they were excited about it, and things were going great, and, and, and all of that. But then, for various reasons, they had to stop building it, and they never started again. And so 10 years and 15 years and 16 years go by, and now there's this push. Excuse me, I'm sorry. There's this push. It's time to get back to what God called you to do. Get back to rebuilding that temple. Well, here now in the book of Malachi, what we're going to see is the temple is up and running. And it's been up and running for 50, 60, 70 years. And now the people are going and they're worshiping, and I'll put that in quotations, at that temple, but their hearts are very, very far from God. And that is what Malachi is going to address. And so I think that this book will be a helpful book for us. Most of us here, we're Christians. We've given our lives to Christ. We're trying to follow him on a daily basis. We come to church every Sunday or whenever the gathering time might be. And even in that, our hearts can be very far from God. Have you been in that experience in your life? You're doing your quiet time, you're volunteering at the church or wherever, you're coming to the services, but you know in your heart that it's distant and you're drifting from God. The book of Malachi addresses those circumstances. And so the title of what I've called our sermon today is Not All Worship is Worship. And that's certainly not something that I want to be said of my life, and I can't imagine it's something that you would like to have said of yours. The book of Malachi will deal with spiritual complacency, a complacency that's set into the nation. It'll deal with a people that are increasingly becoming compromised, but in a way that most people wouldn't even notice. It appeal or it speaks to a religious leadership group, the priests of the society, that have become less than uh, inspiring, just going through the motions of their job. it looks into this idea of religion that becomes just a mere formality. And those are all things I think that uh, are dangers for you and I as well, and certainly not something that I want to be said of my life. That's what Malachi speaks to. Now, I say Malachi speaks to that, but the reality is it's what, who the Lord speaks to or what the Lord speaks to. Because there's a total here of 55 verses in these four chapters and of those 55 verses, 47 of them are directly spoken by God. So they'll say, the Lord said, and then it's followed. 47 of the 55 verses are Malachi taking what God specifically said to say and writing it down. That's 85% of the book are the literal words that God gave Malachi to share. That's more than any other book in the Bible uh, where they're the, the direct words that come from the Lord. And as the last book of the Old Testament, it just seems to me it's as if it's this Lord's last and final pleading with his people to be in a right relationship with him, his Old Testament people. And then the voice of God's going to go silent. And there will be no prophet to the Jewish people for another 400 years until John the Baptist comes on the scene who we begin to read about in the Gospels. There's a unique style that is found in the book of Malachi. And in that style, which is sort of like a question and answering style, the Lord reveals that he knows the attitude of the heart of the Jewish people. And I think that speaks to our lives because God knows what you're thinking. 
He knows what's going on inside of you. He, he knows the doubts that you have, the bad attitude that you have, that you're just going through the motions. A lot of us in this room, we come, we see you, you put on a great smile. We think, yeah, she's doing great. She comes every Sunday, and boy, she's so happy. And yet the Lord knows what's going on in the deep places of your heart. And so the Lord, throughout this book, is going to reveal that he knows the attitude of the heart of these people. And he does it through this unique style, which is to publicly state the question that they've been asking or the statement that they have been making, and then he responds to those statements. So they don't say it out loud. Maybe they say it in a little small groups so or they're talking or when you know they're home and they shut the door and it's just husband and wife or whatever. But he's there and he knows and he hears and he sees. And he reveals that he does. So look at verse 2, for instance, of chapter 1. If I may, I said look at verse 2. And all your heads went down to your Bibles. And I just think that's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for bringing your Bible. Thank you for being students of the word. Verse 2, the Lord speaking, he says, But you say, how have you loved us? You see that there in the middle of the verse? And then after that, the next set of verses, he's going to answer how he has loved them. Look at verse 6 for a minute. The Lord quotes them again as asking that question, whether they verbalized it or just thought it. But how have we despised your name, they say. And again, he goes, and we'll look at it, but he's going to answer that objection on their particular part. And that style of him kind of stating what they're thinking or what they're asking, and then him sort of answering that particular question, that continues throughout the book. And so we're going to see it. Uh, we saw that in verse 2. We saw it in verse 6. We'll see it in verse 7. Uh, we'll see it in verse 13. In chapter 2, we'll see it in 14 and 17. And then in chapter 3, in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 13. He knows what's going on. So you might as well be honest with him. Your prayer life will improve tremendously if you're just honest with God. Lord, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm dealing with. This is how I'm responding to this situation. Now, it doesn't mean you're right because you got, you know, these thoughts or these questions or these ideas or you're, you're hard-hearted about something. It doesn't mean you're right, but at least it begins the dialogue with you and the Lord as opposed to masking it and pretending like nothing's going on. Now, I don't know if you could tell in those couple of verses that we've read, but you will as we continue to go on, that the objections that these folks are raising, and you can see it there in the phrase, but you say, is how God responds. Um, it will become increasingly clear that these people, they have a bad attitude. All right? they, he, he addresses them, think of like a mom or a dad or a teacher. He sort of addresses them, well, like, what are you talking about? Uh, Italian, apparently, we, we've become uh, here. You know, you're like, what are you talking about? I didn't say, that's not true. That's how they're responding to mom or dad, or in this case, to the Lord's. And so for every issue that God raises, they're ready with their response. And every area that he challenges them on, they're quick either to deny the challenge or to flat out say, no, God, you're wrong. So God says, you know, this is what I'm noticing about. No, that's not true. That's not true. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, God, God's saying. I'm sorry, I guess I was mistaken. Forgive me. Does that make any sense? But that's how they keep responding here. And in some instances, they even demand, you'll see it, that God give an accounting of himself for failing to act as they expected him to act. That's the whole issue with, uh, you know, I've loved you. How have you loved us? Prove that you've loved us. Oh, really? You want me to prove it? <laughs> I ain't proving nothing. I'm sorry. I have a bad attitude that I'm tired. This clock thing. It's, it's, that's my sin nature. It's, it's, not, it's not my sin nature. It's the clock thing. It's all its fault. <laughs> they have the audacity to question God. But in reality, every objection that they raise, that we'll look at, it's just one more evidence of how bad their heart attitude actually is. You know, they're revealing it with every question that they ask. So, if you haven't figured it out, the book of Malachi, it's not a book of comfort. It's not a book of encouragement. It's not one you're doing great, just keep it up. It's more of, you need to get your heart right. You need to get your attitude in check, because you got a bad attitude, the Lord says uh, to them. He's going to confront them. Now, there's two sections to the book. Uh, the first section, which is chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 9, he really confronts the priest. You haven't been doing a good job, religious leaders. And he addresses them, 
And then from verse 10 of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 4, he addresses the people of the nation as a whole. All right, so we have sort of an outline. We have an introduction. You, you know where we're going, right? Are you ready? Let's start with verse 1. It says, Now the oracle, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, well, they may build, but I'll tear it back down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, verse 1 begins, it says, the oracle, of, or the, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That's all we know about this particular author. There's other people in the Bible named Malachi, but this particular author, that is all that we know about him, is that he wrote this book, or he penned this book as God directed him. We're never told where he's from. We're never told who his family is. He was the son of this, or son of that, or this person, or his dad did this particular job. We're not told what his lineage is. We don't know anything like that about him. All we know is his name is Malachi. And the name Malachi, it's a Hebrew word. It means messenger. And so all we know about this guy is that he was a messenger of the word of the Lord. And in reality, in many ways, that's all that we need to know about this fella is that he came bringing a message from God. What we truly need to know is the message, not the messenger. And that speaks to me a little bit here because I believe that God has put it on each of our hearts as followers of Christ that we have a message to bring to others. You remember what Jesus said as he was departing from his disciples, he was about to ascend into heaven. He told them to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations uh, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. We have a message. We have been commissioned. That's what the word, um, that's what that phrase that I just quoted is called. It's called the Great Commission. You can change that a little bit and still keep the same meaning. It's, meaning it's called the Great Commandment. We have been commanded to go into all the world and share a message with others. Now, I think what speaks to us here in that we don't know anything about Malachi is we don't need to know anything about Malachi because it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And so whether you are super confident in your ability, and man, God really, he lucked out when he chose you to be one of his kids because you could really accomplish a lot for him, and he must have known that. If you're super confident in your ability to communicate the message, or if you are super bashful, and God could never use someone like me, I can't even talk, you know, clearly, or you're somewhere in between, the message of this book, the beginning verse here, that all we know about this guy is that he was a messenger let that be an encouragement to you, either to bring you down a notch or to bring you up a notch. Your job is simply to bring the message, to tell people about Christ, to point people to the fact that they can be forgiven of their sins, that everybody needs to be forgiven of their sins, but that God so loved the world that he gave his son so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That's the message that God has called us to bring. Trust the message, even if you don't trust yourself as the messenger. And so, delivering that message, look what Malachi says, verse 2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So God begins, he says, man, I've loved you as a nation. And their response is, you have proved that you've loved us. Oh, my goodness. Prove to us you've loved us, he says. God responds, how have I loved you? Well, Jacob I have loved, but Esau, he says, I have hated you can see that there in verse 2. He goes on in verse 3. He says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, if you've forgotten, or maybe you don't even know because you're not as familiar, uh, who Jacob and Esau are, we've learned of those folks in the Old Testament book of Genesis. That's the first book in the Bible. You know, so 4,000 years earlier, 2,000, 3,000 years earlier than the book of Malachi, we, we've learned about these two, Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers. 
Their dad, you've probably heard his name. His name was Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their dad's name was Isaac. Their mom's name was Rebecca. And the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into the lives of these two individuals. You can go back. It's Genesis 25 and the chapters that follow it, and you can read it on your own. But the Apostle Paul gives us a little insight about these two individuals. He writes this in Romans chapter 9. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not even yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, who's Esau, will serve the younger, who is Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so God chose a man, a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham grew up in a far distant land and he worshiped and he served like everybody else in that land, many gods and goddesses. God spoke into Abraham's life. He said, I want you to leave this place and I want, I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you and I'm going to give you an inheritance, a promised land. And Abraham becomes, in that way, the grandfather of the Jewish people. Well, Abraham had multiple children. One of those children, God was going to follow that line and continue to work through and bless. That was Isaac. Isaac had multiple kids, Jacob and Esau. One of those kids, God was going to follow that line and bless. That was Jacob. Jacob would go on to have 12 children. One of those children was a fellow by the name of Judah. And it's from Judah that we get the Jewish name, the, all of those tribes of Jacob. But from Judah, we get that Jewish name, the Jewish people. God determined, God selected. Now, it, it really drives the point home that he chose Isaac while he was in the womb of his mother. So it wasn't something about Isaac. It wasn't like, what a good boy. You know what? I'm going to follow the family line through you because you've been such a good boy. He was a little baby inside of his mother's womb. Hadn't done anything to earn the favor of his father or the favor of his mother, but God chose him. And in choosing him, he didn't choose the other one. And that's the point of that statement. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I've poured out all of my love upon the people of Israel. I haven't poured out all of my love upon the people of Esau or as the name of the country would be, the country of Edom. And so you ask me, how have I loved you? I've poured out all my love upon you. From Genesis chapter 25, which was probably around the year 2000 BC, all the way here in the book of Malachi, which is around the year 400 BC, I've been pouring out my love on the Jewish people. He says, go to the border of Israel and Edom and look back at Israel and look over the border at Edom. And you tell me which one that I've poured out my love upon. How have I loved you? I've loved you in ways that you know, can't even be counted. God continues this direct confrontation as he moves to verse 6. This time by specifically talking to the priest. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God the father, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priest, he says, who despise my name. But, of course, their answer is, how have we despised your name? So, again, imagine mom or dad coming and confronting you about something, and your first response is, how? I haven't done that. It, it reveals an attitude of the heart. They say, how have we despised your name? He'll tell them, verse 7, how have you despised my name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, here we go again. Always got a response. Just be quiet. All right, and listen. But you say, how have we polluted you? And he answers by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. They call that polluted food. And their, their question is, well, when did we offer polluted food? What are you talking about? Now, the Old Testament law is important for us to understand here because we don't do this in our culture, uh, in the Christian faith. We don't bring our offerings to the temple, animal offerings to the temple, but they did. And in faith, they looked forward to that great sacrifice, which would be the Messiah himself on the cross. 
And the Old Testament was very, very specific what was required of the sacrificial offering that a person brought. And they would bring it as an act of worship. And it was very specific. This is what you can bring. This is what you can't bring. It's found in the book of Leviticus. The word Leviticus, it means the law or the giving of the law. And in Leviticus chapter 22, we read this. It says, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Now remember, Aaron and his sons, they were the priest. Aaron the high priest, his sons were the lesser priest, we'll call them. And so God telling Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, speak to the priest and to all the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or their free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male animal without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats, and you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect that is, without blemish. Therefore, or there shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? All right, and there's other places that are other examples of that. Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, you'll find it there as well. The scripture was very clear. And so either the priest here that were accepting these blemished animals and offering them, that's the polluted offerings that they were bringing, either the priest were unaware of the clear scripture on this issue, and that you say, well, they didn't know. Well, they should know. That's their responsibility. So either they were unaware or they knew and they didn't care. And they did what they wanted to do and they offered up these blemished animals or these polluted animals. And so here they're saying, well, when did we offer polluted food upon your offer? And the Lord, he says, when did you offer polluted food? Verse 80 responds again. He says, you offer polluted food when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Then he says this, and I love this little statement here. He says, bring that to your governor. Next time it's tax season, you bring down that to your governor and you see if he accepts it or if she accepts it. The priests, they were offering defiled sacrifices on God's altar. And in doing so, they were modeling for the people that it was okay to them, for them to bring defiled offerings in violation of scripture. And so the people were. They were bringing offerings that they really didn't want anyway. That animal, you know, if we keep that animal around here another six weeks or so, it's probably gonna die. And we gotta bring an offering. Why don't we bring that one? And we'll keep the healthy one for ourselves. We'll just bring the one we didn't want anyway. We'll bring that down there. The sick cow that was going to die, that's what they'd offer. We'll put it maybe in our that junky old couch that your dog's been urinating on or whatever that you didn't want anyway and you were going to throw it away, but you got to bring something to the church, so let's give them the junky old couch. Keep your junky old couch, all righty? Because I'm just going to throw it away uh, as you could do. But do, do you catch the connection? I don't want it anyway, but I got to give something to God, so let's give them that. And he calls their attention if you will, the audacity of their actions. Again, he says, try giving that to your governor and see how he would respond. He says, with such an offering, he asks sort of his own question now in verse 9. He says, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? If that's what you're bringing as your offering, he continues in verse 10. It almost seems like God is like exasperated. I just don't know what to do with these people. And so he says this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that is, to the temple, 
that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. That is, bring a sacrifice. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, he says again, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. Now, the attitude of these worshipers, quote-unquote, was essentially that God should just be happy that we've come at all. That they were doing God a favor by coming to this place and doing this act of worship, that God, you know, you should just be grateful. It's almost as if they're thinking, you know what, God, if you don't like it, then I don't have to come here anymore. And then you'll be sorry. As if they're trying to call God's bluff, as if he's going to respond like, hey, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please, you know, forget I said anything. But God says just the opposite of that. You know, so if indeed they were saying something to the effect of, you know what, if you're going to give us a hard time about what we bring, maybe we won't come here anymore. Notice what the Lord says in the next verse. He basically says, you know what, that's a good idea. Let's shut the doors altogether so you can't come here anymore. He says in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain, he says. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now remember, it's the people that are bringing the offering, but it was the priests that were actually accepting those offerings and then offering those offerings. And that's who God's really dealing with in the opening portion of this book. He's dealing with the priest. And so he's, he's saying essentially here, oh, that there was someone who would shut the door. Oh, that there was a priest that would reverence my name enough to shut the doors of this temple so that this sort of thing doesn't have to continue. Oh, that there was someone that would rise up and call out the hypocrisy for what it is and take the steps to put an end to it. God's, his plea is that a priest would be raised up that would do that. And there really wasn't. And this would continue on for hundreds and hundreds of years where people come to the temple, they just go through the motions, God, you should be happy with what I brought. And no real interest in heart change or reality of heart. And eventually it's the Lord himself, God himself, that would slam the doors of the temple that he kind of longed for in that verse. And that takes place, as we know, we've talked about it, 70 AD. When the Romans come in, God would use the Romans, they would tear down the temple, and there would never again, at least in our history, never again be that worship in the temple. The doors of the temple were slammed shut. He says in verse 11, from the rising of the sun to the setting, of the sun, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense offered to my name. Again, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's what every human being was created to do make God's name great, to glorify his name in our actions, in our words, in our heart attitude, to bring glory to his name. And he says, My name will be great among the nations. But then, verse 12, he says, But you profane it. He says, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its food, that its food may be despised. He says, you profane it, look at the next verse there, when you say, what a weariness this is. He says, you profane it, uh, referring to sort of the burden of the Lord. Man, we got to go to church again. Anybody say that this morning? I hope not. I remember when I was a kid and Christmas would fall on like Friday. And so we'd go to church on Friday and then Sunday. And mom's like, we're going to church. Again? We just went. To, now I like going to church. I enjoy being here with each of you. But I didn't then. It was a weariness to me. And that's what they're saying. We got to go to the temple again. We got to bring our sacrifice again. What a weariness this is. The next one there, it says, and you snort at it. That's an interesting phrase. It's a word that describes a long, drawn-out exhale or sigh. <sighs> Again, we have to go to church? It's the kind of exhale that a person makes when they want to make it very, very clear 
that they'll do what you're asking them to do, but they're not going to like it. And everyone's going to know that they don't like it until finally mom will say, you know what, fine, just don't do it at all. And they're like, yes. Or maybe dad says it, I don't know. I think of teenagers being asked to take out the garbage. Fine, I'll do it. You know, but they don't want to do it. And they want you to say, well, if you're not going to have a good attitude, don't do it at all. Great. <laughs> and they go back to the room. So they say, yeah, we'll come, we'll worship, we'll bring our offerings, we'll do it, but we're going to be miserable the whole time that we do. And we're going to bring junk the whole time that we bring something. He goes on, he describes the attitude of their heart in which they come to worship. And he gives a couple more examples, starting in verse 13. He's, one of them is, he says, you bring as an offering what you violently stole from someone else. And so they, want to, they have to bring an offering. It's a weariness, but they got to do it. Fine. But they don't want it to cost them anything. So on the way to the temple, they mug somebody, steal their wallet, and throw their cash into the, the offering plate. Does that seem like what God wants? Well, he got his money, right? No, he doesn't want his money. He wants your heart attitude, a proper heart attitude. So we don't mug people on the way to church so that we can throw something into the little box there. Again, he says in verse 13, you bring that which is lame and sick. He's already sort of addressed that, and we have already sort of addressed that. He goes on at the end of verse 13. He says, should I accept that from your hand? Of course not. You know, if somebody robbed a bank and they wanted to donate a million dollars to our church, like the FBI would get involved. So will God. All right, God's not, I don't want your million dollars when you acquire it that particular way. Of course not. Should I accept that? It shouldn't even be a question. Now, in the Old Testament, we learned this when we were studying Leviticus on Wednesdays, and it was, it was actually quite interesting and something I wasn't familiar with prior to digging into it together with the group. But what we learned there is there were a whole bunch of different types of offerings. I think there's seven different offerings uh, that were prescribed to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And so you have there the burned offering, you have the peace offering, the grain offering, the wave offering. You had all these different types of offering. And each one, you had to bring this kind of an animal, or you bring this kind of grain, or you can bring this and it's totally consumed, or you bring this and you get half of it back, and all that. And so we spent some time looking at it, and you begin to ask the question, why all these offerings? Why all the different offerings? Why not have you know, just one uh, and just bang it out all at once here? And what we learned is, is that every single offering that is brought, every different offering that was brought, is designed to communicate a different attitude of the heart of the worshiper. And so if you brought the burn offering, that offering would be completely consumed on the fire of the altar there at the temple. And that was designed to communicate the attitude of the heart of the worshiper of total consecration to God. If you brought the peace offering, that was the portion of the offering where some of it was kept by the temple there, the priest, it was consumed and all of that. And then some of it was given back to you. And so you took some of the meat back of the animal that you brought and you enjoyed that with your family. That was the peace offering. It was designed to communicate a desire to have fellowship with God. And so an intimacy of relationship with God. So if that was your heart attitude, you would bring a peace offering. Every single offering that you brought was designed to communicate a different attitude of the heart. And so here's the question in the context of what we're looking at. What attitude communicates, God, you can have my junk. God, you could have that which I don't want anyway. God, you can have that which isn't going to cost me anything, but the poor schmo that I rob at gunpoint, it's going to cost him. What, what hard attitude is being communicated in those kinds of offering? Of course, it's a hard attitude that, that reveals very little reverence for who God is in the offerings that they brought. Now, it's really important that we understand this as we look at this passage. This isn't a rebuke about the value of the gift. Again, they could have robbed the bank and brought a million dollars, and that's probably the biggest gift that temple's going to get in that given year or any year, perhaps here. So it's not about the value of the thing that they are bringing. I can't believe you brought me a blemished cow. I can't believe you brought me you know, the, the couch that the dog you know, peed all over. It's not about that. 
Because we have an example in the New Testament. In, it's recorded in two different places. It's Mark chapter 12. It's Luke chapter 21. So if it's Luke 21, we know, and even Mark 12, we know it's coming to the end of Jesus' life. And Jesus and his disciples, his closest 12, they're, they're together in the temple. Now remember, the temple isn't just a building. There is a building in the middle of a big courtyard. And nobody really goes into the building, just the priest. But all of the worshipers, they're out in the courtyard area. And so Jesus is out in the courtyard area with his disciples. And they had then, kind of almost like smack dab in the middle of the courtyard, one of these offering boxes that we hang on our wall. There would be sort of an offering box right there in kind of the middle of the courtyard. And the people would come, not their animal, but they would come and they would bring their donation of money to support the temple and they would drop it in there. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're sitting there and Jesus is watching the people come to worship. And he's noticing that some people come and they put in a huge offering. I don't know how he noticed, but maybe cling, all the chains started banging. And he notices that they put in a huge offering. And as they turn around, they... I don't know if you can see me here, but they, they want to make sure everybody notices. They made sure they had lots of coins that day to drop into the tin bar, jar so that everybody would see and notice. And oh my goodness, look at the size of that offering that they brought. And then it tells us there was this little old lady. And she had two small little coins. And she snuck her way up there and she waited for all the commotion to end. And she quietly dropped in those two little coins there. And Jesus was watching. Nobody else was. The disciples were watching because Jesus told them to. But nobody else is paying attention to this little old lady. And Jesus said, you see that little old lady? I tell you this, she gave far more than anybody else today. It wasn't about, about the value of the offering. It was about the hard attitude of the offering. And this lady, she gave all, out of all that she had to live on. Whereas those other guys, they gave out of their riches, she came and she gave all that she could give. They came and gave something they really didn't need anyway. And they didn't do it to bring God glory, but they did it to bring themselves glory. And they had forgotten the example of King David. Remember King David in the Old Testament? And he wanted to buy the threshing floor there at the top of uh, the mount in Jerusalem where a sacrifice could be offered. It was kind of the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. There was this threshing floor. It was owned by a, a private citizen. And, and David, the king, wanted to buy that as a place where sacrifice could be offered in Jerusalem. And he went to this guy, this farmer fella, the king, went to this farmer fella, and he said, I would like to buy your threshing floor. And the farmer guy's like, buy my threshing floor? You can have it. You're the king. And David says, no, I want to offer an offering to God, and I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. These guys here in that story I told you from the New Testament, they gave out of their plenty. It didn't mean anything to them. In the Old Testament here, yeah, just bring the, dead cow, or the dying cow. We'll give that to the Lord. It didn't cost them anything. Their hard attitude was God was not worth it. But again, David there says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. He brought the Lord his very best. Last week, as I closed out our study of Zechariah, I quoted two different verses from the Apostle Paul, and I sort of put the concept that he was communicating in those two verses together. It was Colossians chapter 3, it was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and essentially what he communicated to us is this, whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we are to do it for the glory of God. And so anything that we do, no matter how grand or no matter how small, like the lady with two small coins, anything that we can do can be done for God's glory. And the place where that begins is right inside of our own hearts. That's God's expectation for his people. Notice again, he closes the chapter, verse 14. He says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so this morning, 
I think this is a message this morning for religious people. We'll put that in quotations. Religious people that are doing religious things and for the people that lead them. And so if we made a comparison to today, these folks here in the book of Malachi, these are churchgoers. And these are the priests that serve those churchgoers. And yet, their hearts were askew. Their hearts were off. The folks that we have highlighted here in this first chapter, these are not people that were in open rebellion. These are not people that were worshiping idols and, and things like that. Nor did they, were they people that denied that they should bring an offering. They did. They found something. They scrounged it up. They brought something. The problem is that they were laboring under this delusion that simply because they brought God something or they went and they did something for God, like went to church for an hour, that all was good when in reality it was not good. That in reality, despite their actions, they were actually quite far from God. We can drift. I imagine almost every one of us in here has been in an ocean with that, what's it called? The riptide thing? Is that what it's called? That rip current, I think it's called. And you, you look up and you're like, that's not the beach I was on before. And you have no idea. And you just drift. We can drift. You're still in the same ocean. You're still in the same church. You're still in the same seat. You're still carrying the same Bible. And yet you've drifted. God would not have us to drift. I want to draw your attention to one last thing. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. And I, don't, I never really thought of it as a passage that might apply to what we've been talking about today in Malachi, except for the last sentence of this paragraph. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will, be times, will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now here's the reason why I'm sharing it. Look at verse 5. And having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. All those things that we just read, and still going to church every Sunday, still having their quiet time every day, still giving to the offering and all those things that might set you apart as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's these folks in Malachi chapter 1, the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And it's the power of God which truly causes a person to be godly bringing their offerings, making their way to temple. Some of them were the very priests that ran services in the temple. All of them having the appearance of godliness. And so the application then, because I don't, I don't want to come here and just learn about how bad those people were. I want God to deal with my heart. I want him to do work in my heart, and I hope you do as well. And so how's your heart this morning? What's the posture of your heart? Is it inclined toward worship? Truly honoring God, whether you give him two pennies or a million bucks, just truly honoring him with your gift of worship? Or are you just going through the motions? Do you sit in your quiet time and you do it every day? You bang it out and you put your Bible down and you move on to Facebook. But I did what I was supposed to do. Are you going through the motions? Are you going through the motions in your giving? Are you going through the motions in your church attendance? You're here every week, but are you going through the motions? Are you serving the Lord in some way and yet just going through the motions? It's no longer about giving God glory and honor. Now, the solution isn't to necessarily abandon those things. Like, we could hear this and say, well, then fine, I just won't go to church anymore. That's what they said, remember? Well, if you're going to act like that, God, then I won't come anymore. So the solution isn't necessarily to abandon these things. I think we see in the scripture how important it is for us to be doing those things. The solution is to come before God and to ask him to search out our hearts, to really put his finger on an area of our hearts, to shine his light into the dark places of our hearts and to reveal 
where we may be going astray, where we may be just going through the motions, where we may just be doing service for service sake, but not to bring him honor and glory. And I'll end today with this quote. This is from David again. This is when King David, before he was a king, I believe, when he, he wrote this as a psalm. And he said this, and I think it's an, a wonderful prayer that every one of us should pray frequently. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You and God alone in a time of prayer that God might minister to the deep places of your heart that he would search it out and reveal. He knows. Sometimes we need to have it revealed to us. Amen? Amen. And so why don't, we, uh, why don't we just take a few moments just to be quiet in prayer. I, I always find it remarkable. There's a couple hundred of us here, but God hears every single one of our prayers. And so let's just take a moment to go before him and ask him to search out our hearts. Lord, you know the deep places of our hearts better than we know the deep places of our hearts. And Father, you know uh, why you created each one of us to bring you glory, to honor you, Lord, to be in right relationship with you. And you know those things that hinder that from happening. And so, God, I, I pray with David... Lord, that you would search me and know me. Lord, I pray for this congregation, that you would search each one of us and know each one of us. Lord, that in your grace you would reveal those areas and those attitudes of the heart that are far from you, that need to go. And Lord, it begins by you exposing them. And so, Lord, in your grace, we ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, typically we don't like to have our flaws or whatever they might be revealed. We try to keep them hidden. And yet in our relationship with you, it's different. Lord, even as you reveal them, you welcome us. And you invite us in. And, and the more that they are exposed and, and put out of our lives, the closer we draw near to you. And the light of your being, who you are, just shines brighter inside of each one of us. And Lord, that's what we're asking. That's what we need. That's what we long for. And so again, Lord, search us and know us. Try us. Reveal our thoughts. Lord, any grievous way within us, Lord, we want to put it out. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.